What's in a name uh, to those in our political world, especially in recent years? There is much to a name. We had a recent president who delighted in giving people names uh, and uh, often was very effective at defining his opponents by those names. I don't think um, even he could do as good a job as uh, my favorite, um, not my favorite political party, but my favorite name for a political party, the Know Nothings. I mean, how could you have a better name for a political party than the Know Nothings? Uh, I'm not endorsing uh, what the Know Nothings believed or stood for, but the simple point is, in our world today, we think about how we are defined by the names we are called and how others are defined by the names they are called. Which is why I don't think we should just pass over it simply in our Bibles when we read in Acts chapter 11 that the church at Antioch, the disciples at Antioch, were first called Christians. The very first Christians, no, I don't mean those who had the reality of being Christians. I mean those who bore the name of Christian. Thank you. The name of Christian were in Antioch. The other interesting thing to note about the first Christians was that it does not appear that Christian was a name they gave themselves. It was a name that was given to them, they were called Christians. By whom? Pagans. In other words, in Antioch, when they are surrounded by unbelievers, pagans, people living, as we'll find, in open immorality, when they thought of followers of Jesus Christ, they said, oh, the Christians over there. What's in a name? Are we just to allow this to be an interesting historical footnote for us? A kind of interesting piece of information that we can pass along one day? Yeah, those Christians, you know that name arose in Antioch. I don't believe so. My premise tonight is very simple. There was something going on in the church at Antioch that made it natural that in that city, for the first time, the followers of Jesus Christ were referred to as Christians, or as literally Christ ones. Christ ones, or we could say Christ's ones, possessed, bought, owned by Christ. And ultimately, I think we're going to find tonight that Antioch in first century Syria, the Roman Empire, is not actually all that different from 21st century Minneapolis. And ultimately, my challenge to us tonight, and perhaps not just tonight, but in the weeks that follow, will be this question. Would the citizens of Minneapolis, the pagans of Minneapolis, truly know us as Christ ones, like the name that these Christians in Antioch bore in the first century AD. The title of the message tonight is simply Christians at Antioch. Christians at Antioch. What is a Christian? Why was Antioch a prime place where Christians would be named as such? It is important to note 
that Christian is very rarely used in our Bible. Do you know how many times Christian is used in our entire New Testament as applied to a, as applied to a follower of Christ? Three. This is one. The other one you may remember from the book of Acts, later in the book of Acts, when King Agrippa is meeting with Paul and Paul is presenting the gospel to him. And do you remember what Agrippa asked Paul? Almost persuadest thou me to be a Christian. This was almost certainly a disparaging name for Christians at one point. This was a perhaps almost likely a, a, a term of mockery, an epithet, a Christian. The only other place it's used in our Bible is in 1 Peter, when Peter, referring to persecution, says, but if you suffer for being a Christian, Christian, happy are you. Three places in all our Bible that they are named Christian. What an interesting thing where now that word, Christian, is predominant all over the world and over our country. The foundational name for Christ. It wasn't for those followers of Christ. It was not always so. But as I said, I want to suggest for us tonight that there were some facets, there were some characteristics of this church at Antioch that made it very natural to be given this name of Christ One that ultimately was embraced by the church. And I want us to look at some of these characteristics. We're going to look at three of them tonight. The first is that it was a disciple church. It was a disciple church. The second is that it was a diverse church. And finally, we're going to look at the fact that it was a devoted church. First, a disciple church. Look with me at verse number 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. What was that? It was the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen being stoned, as we read about back only a couple chapters before. And that persecution arose, and the Christians were scattered abroad, traveling as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, here's that city, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. So at this point, Christianity, the way of Christ, was really held out before the Jews. Now immediately before this, in chapter 11, Peter has testified to the church at Jerusalem about the conversion of really the first Gentile, true Gentile in the church. And who was that? Who was that? Come on, folks. Cornelius. Cornelius was the first Gentile convert. And here, the door of the gospel has been blown open to the Gentiles. But before this point, it was a Jewish faith. Now, you say, well, didn't Philip and go and preach at Samaria? Yes, but even Samaria were filled with half-Jewish people. And so Cornelius is this earthquake of truly throwing the door open to the Gentiles. We remember in verse 18 here in chapter 11, when they heard these things, the Jews at Jerusalem, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Ben, hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So notice here, um, uh, when, when Jerusalem persecution happens, people are going everywhere, scattering to preach the gospel, but they're preaching to Jews. Now notice what happens. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now in this context, Grecians or the Hellenists almost certainly refers to Greek-speaking Gentiles. 
So you get the idea. Everywhere, the church is going preaching to Jews. And now Luke is recording that some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene, he doesn't even tell us who. They're trailblazers. They're pioneers. They get to Antioch, and what do they do? There's a ton of pagans here. There's a ton of Gentiles. Why don't we preach the gospel to them? And there they go. Now, what were they doing? They were preaching the Lord Jesus. Notice this was the true gospel that was being preached at Antioch. Scripture speaks of that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. There is a controversy today in our conservative churches about something that is called lordship salvation. And you can certainly define what lordship salvation is, is in a way that is entirely unbiblical. And yet we cannot separate salvation from who Jesus is as Lord because we are called to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead. And when they came to Antioch, they were preaching the Lord, the kurios, the sovereign authority. That was the message of the early church. Jesus is coming to be the judge of quick and dead. He will judge you. He is kurios. He was the Lord Jesus. This was the gospel that they were preaching. They were preaching the good news. Not only that, notice what God's work was. It was not just the preaching of the true gospel. It was true conversion. Verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. What a wonderful definition of salvation. They believed and they turned to the Lord. There is repentance and faith right there, two sides of the same gospel coin. They believe and they turn, and those two things are always linked. A belief, a quote-unquote belief in Jesus Christ that does not involve turning to him is not true saving faith. And a turning to him that does not combine with true faith, with belief, is not true saving faith. They believed and they turned to the Lord. What a wonderful description of true salvation. And notice who's getting saved. It's not just Jews. It's Gentiles. This is a pioneer work in a pioneer city. And then notice true growth. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed. Not only that, verse 22, the tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which is in Jerusalem. You mean a whole bunch of Gentiles are getting saved? And what did they do? Well, something natural. They sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Why? Because they're going to check it out. This was such a new thing multitudes of Gentiles accepting the truth of God's word. This is truly a pioneer work. And so what do they do? Barnabas, a man who we know, the son of consolation, the one who was such, scripture just presents him as such a big-hearted guy. I just love Barnabas. I just identify with this guy who just had this overwhelming, massive heart to love people and disciple people and minister to people wherever they were. And they send Barnabas. Now, why'd they send Barnabas? He was a Jew, but where was, he, where was he from? Do you remember where Barnabas was from in the New Testament? Cyprus. Guess what Cyprus was? 
a Gentile area. They were wise, the church at Jerusalem. When they heard that Gentiles were getting saved and coming to Christ, do you think they were going to send one of the Judaizers? No. They were going to send Barnabas, the guy who grew up in Cyprus, the guy who knew this kind of area and community. And they send him. And what does he do? Notice verse 23. Who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, this was a true gospel work, he was glad and he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, they would cling to the Lord. What a wonderful disciple maker this man was. He saw a true work of God in Gentile people and it thrilled him to his core. And he said, all right, I got to disciple you. Now notice again, verse 24, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. Do people say the same thing about you? What better thing could it be than, oh yeah, that guy, that, that gal? Yeah, she's a good woman and she's full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. Man, may people describe me, may people describe, be able truly to describe us like that, full of the Holy Ghost in a faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. This is true gospel explosion, dynamic growth and evangelism in this disciple church. But what makes this so truly unique in Antioch was not only that it was a disciple church, but then that it was a disciple church that was a diverse church. Now, what do I mean? We need to know a little bit about Antioch. I will tell you, before I studied for this message, I had no idea what kind of city Antioch was. This is the city that is Antioch in Syria. It was was founded by a man named Seleucus. He was one of the generals of Alexander the Great. And his father's name was Antiochus. And so he named this city in Syria, modern-day Turkey, He named it after his dad, Antioch. And Antioch became one of the thriving cities of the entire Roman Empire. Do you know, this blew me away. Do you know Antioch in Syria was the third most populous city in the entire Roman Empire? It was behind only Rome and Alexandria. Number three was Antioch in Syria. Today, it's ruins. It's nothing It's next to a town of perhaps a few thousand people. But back then, it was truly magnificent. It is said that around this time, I saw estimates that said around Paul's time, it would would have been had a population of between two and 300,000 people. Some said it would be as much as 500,000 people or more. Now, this city of Minneapolis is what, 400,000 people or so? We're talking about a Minneapolis-esque city, but back in that day, this was not the Minneapolis of the Roman Empire. It's like the Chicago. It's like Los Angeles. It's like Houston. It's one of the massive cities of the entire day. Now let that sink in for a minute. That's where the gospel's going. That is where Gentiles are getting saved. That's where the gospel is exploding with massive numbers of Gentiles coming to the faith. Now, what is, else is about Antioch? It was a hub of trade because it was on wonderful trade routes that could get you to the Orient, that could get you north, that could get you south, that could get you down to Africa. And so Antioch was just this bustling thoroughfare. And it was, a, uh, I, this is what uh, I saw in my study, that apparently there were at least 18 different ethnic groups 
that resided in Antioch. 18 different ethnic groups. Apparently also is, is what is said, the entire city was divided by a wall between Syrians and Greeks. It was just closed off. And so people in these ethnic groups would live in their little hostels, right? In their little enclaves. Now we know that today. You go by a big city and there's a little Italy. Why? Because that's where the Italian folks lived. If you go not far from here in St. Paul, you're going to run into Swede Hollow. Why? Because that's where the Swedes lived. Today, that process is just continuing to, to, uh, to, continuing to repeat itself. We think of even in Minneapolis, little Mogadishu is the uh, place of where Somalis, right down the street, we would say this is an enclave of Somalis, the biggest population of Somalis anywhere in the world, but in Somalia, is here in Minneapolis, in New York City. The largest collections of Jews anywhere in the world, other than Israel, is in New York City. And you see all kinds of Jewish enclaves, Hasidic and Orthodox Jews. This is a natural human phenomenon. When people of a different culture and a different community come together, they are in an enclave. They live together. They have shops that orient toward them. They have their own language being spoken in these enclaves. They are an enclave. They are a culture. They are a community that is around a racial or an ethnic group, and they are keeping to themselves. This was Antioch, just like it's every big city. Now, why is this so relevant? Because in this city of such a hub, of such a place of importance, where are the converts coming from? They're coming from everywhere. They are coming from the Gentile population, not merely the Jewish population. Again, who were these Gentiles? They were pagans. They were idol worshipers. They weren't the religious Jews. Where had Christianity been focused? On those religious folks, the ones who believed in the Bible, the ones who were waiting for a Messiah, the one who had already Jewish customs and traditions that these Jews would go and attempt to point to the Old Testament to the, who Jesus Christ was as the Messiah. And now where were they going? They were going to a Gentiles who had no time for the Old Testament. Going to Gentiles who had no place for a Messiah in their Jewish-centric worldview. They were Gentiles. They were pagans. Who, what do we care about Jerusalem? What do we care? By the way, Antioch dwarfed Jerusalem. Antioch was way more important historically than Jerusalem was. Sometimes we again get it mixed up. Oh, Jerusalem was the big city, and then there are these little ones. No, Antioch was the big city. Jerusalem was not. And you say, what of it? What of these converts? Friends, the, the point is this. This church at Antioch was the first church in the New Testament age that truly lived out Ephesians chapter 2. The first one. Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, wasn't it? Wasn't Those were Jews. No other church, the Samaritan church, truly didn't live that out. What about the Antioch church? Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off from the covenants of Judaism, from God's work through the seed of Abraham, you are made nigh, you're brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who hath made both Jew and Gentile one 
and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us for a city that apparently had a wall to divide Syrian and Syria, Syrians and Greeks. Can you imagine what that would have meant to them? That Jesus Christ broke down the wall of partition between them, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, of two, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. The church at Antioch was the first one to truly live out the implications of the gospel where Jews and Gentiles and every single race and ethnicity that was in the Roman Empire at that time in these 18 different ethnicities were coming together in one church body and community. Now, what does that look like? We know how that happened. It was the Holy Spirit, for we are baptized by one spirit into one body. We are baptized into Christ by the Spirit of God. There is one spirit and there is one body. This is the work of God. This is the plan of God the Father brought about by the Son, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is God's plan. And it was those at Antioch that truly were living it out for the very first time. And not only do we see this incredible mix at Antioch, this, this prosperous city, we see it in the very church community itself. Turn over two chapters to Acts chapter 13. Again, once you see Antioch and realize its importance, you start seeing it everywhere. Do you know this was the site of in, 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 in uh, Galatians chapter 2 where Paul confronted Peter because Peter was isolating himself from the Gentile community when, when the followers of James were there? A lot of stuff happened at Antioch. Do you know this is where in Acts chapter 15 when the delegation went to the church about whether the Gentiles had to follow Jewish regulations like circumcision and dietary laws, they sent the answer where? Back to Antioch. It was the hub. It was such a critical place of importance. But notice with me in chapter 13 and verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch, this church, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas. Now who is Barnabas? We said he was a Jew from a Gentile area, from Cyprus. Who else? Simeon that was called Niger. The word Niger means simply black. He may have been an African uh, Christian. He may have been from North Africa. But whatever he was, he had the nickname, the name Black, Simeon the Black. And Lucius of Cyrene. Where was Cyrene? Cyrene was in modern-day Libya. It is in North Africa. And what about else? And Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Here is a man who was in a place of extreme privilege. He may have been the foster brother, the stepbrother of Herod Antipas, growing up in a royal household. You want to talk about prestige, wealth, reputation, place of influence? There's Menaean. Who else? And Saul, Paul. Who was Paul? Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. 
He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees who was known in Jerusalem, the most steadfast of the Jewish sect. Friends, look at all of those church leaders, prophets and teachers, and what do you see? The entire church community was reflecting the diversity of the area that was around them. They were reflective of the city of Antioch. And what a remarkable thing that was, that there was truly a work of God that had raised up these diverse men into a place of influence in this community. It was a disciple church. It was a diverse church. And we need to see, finally, it was a devoted church. Now, what a, what a, a plan of God to birth this first truly diverse church in the city of Antioch. Do you know why? Because Antioch was a cesspool. Antioch was known in that day as being a place of absolutely filthy immorality. The, the, the um, idol um, Daphne, a legend of that day, um, there was a garden that was devoted to Daphne and apparently was a place of just out and out open prostitution connected to religious, so quote unquote, worship. It was a place of so much wealth and opulence that the people turned to just utter unrestrained carnality and fleshliness. In fact, Juvenal, the Roman historian, was so taken with this that he made a comment, a very com uh, uh, well-known comment, about how the filthiness of Antioch on the river, he called it, that it was on, had flow flowed all the way down into the Tiber River. He was suggesting that Antioch had corrupted Rome. It was so bad. And here, in this filthy, polluted city with all kinds of sexual immorality and idolatry and licentiousness is a church in which revival is happening and souls are being won in scores to the Lord. There was a commitment to evangelism. We see in verse 24, much people was added unto the Lord. There was a commitment to doctrine. Notice verse 25, Paul left from Antioch and went to Tarsus for to search, to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. They were utterly committed to the teaching of God's word. And then notice as well, they were utterly committed to service for others. Notice at the end here. And in these days, verse 27, came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, this diverse group in Antioch, every man according to his ability, led and directed by the Spirit of God, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Friends, can you imagine Antioch? a city that was divided into a gr different enclaves of different racial and ethnic groups, one group stands out. Those Christ ones, they don't stick to their enclaves. They gather together. They gather together and they're drawing people in from all of the different racial and ethnic groups of the city. And guess what? They actually love each other. 
They love each other so much that they give sacrificially to people they've never met in Jerusalem. To Jews, the ones who hate Gentiles, mind you. I mean, if we think black and white is the dividing line racially in our country, we would know nothing of what it was to see the division between Jews and Gentiles in the time of Christ, the hatred that existed between one another. And what word gets around in Antioch? Why are they collecting all this money? Oh, they're sending it to the Jews that are in Jerusalem, their brothers. Do you get a sense of why they would have been called Christians? What else could they be called? They weren't united by a race or ethnicity. They weren't united by socioeconomic status. You had Menaean brought up in a king's household down undoubtedly to common slaves. You couldn't unite around geographic dispersion. These people would have been coming together in one meeting place from their different racial enclaves. What is the only thing that could possibly unite them? That they were Christ's ones? Christians? That they were possessed by Christ because they had been redeemed by him? They were united in Christ because they could not be united in anything else but him? And because they were now being transformed by Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit that these, that these pagans could not possibly understand? Friends, those who study the history of the early church and the spread of the early church comment on how Christianity brought a radically transformed culture to the cities to which it came. People giving generously to the poor and in, 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 in for, um, in, in for social causes in a way that no, no other ethnic group could have understood. People uniting under a common church community in ways in which they had no other connection to one another. There is no other way to explain it other than the Holy Spirit turning the human condition upside down and creating a culture in which Christ and only Christ was at the center. They were truly Christ ones. And nothing else. Now, we are here in Minneapolis. We're here in a city in which 18 different ethnic groups would probably be a low estimate of the ones that are right out within a few miles of this church. Whether it's the Little Earth housing community right down Franklin off Cedar. Whether it's the Somalis that we see around us whether it's down on Lake Street where you see Spanish-speaking businesses, whether it's um, the, the African-American enclaves, if you will, um, neighborhoods in the north side and over here on the near south side, whatever way you look at it, to even those as we've seen in our church from Tibet or other spots, this is a place like Antioch. It is a place where sin and immorality is reigning. Frankly, probably not in the same extent that it was in Antioch. It was probably almost certainly worse, if you will, in a public, open, licentious display. And we are called in this place to be Christ's ones, united by nothing else but Jesus Christ. 
by the Holy Spirit that is calling us to be discipled and disciple makers, to be truly a pioneer church that calls people out of a variety of different cultures into one united new culture that is centered around Jesus Christ. You say, what's the problem? The problem for so many of us is that we have a hard time truly understanding what a culture that is affiliated solely around Jesus Christ looks like. We have difficulty picturing that. I remember uh, the story recently of a church down south, a very large Southern Baptist church that had a rally for our former president and they they sang a quote-unquote hymn and the title of the hymn was Make America Great Again. We should ask ourselves for someone coming into that church community, what culture are they being identified with? What culture are they being asked to enter into? And is it one that is marked by Christ's ones? I remember when I was down as a, as a student, I've told this story before, I was leaving my apartment and some of us were going over to a Cadoba. It happened to be in Chapel Hill. And if you know North Carolina, you know Chapel Hill is the site of the University of North Carolina. I was at the Duke University in Durham. And if you think of the Vikings-Packers rivalry, that is a small piece of what the Duke-North Carolina rivalry is. They're eight miles from each other, and they hate each other. And as I went out of my apartment, I looked down, and I was wearing a Duke shirt. And I just said, Eh, oh well, all right, this will be kind of interesting. I'm just going to go to Chapel Hill wearing a Duke shirt. And I went, it's right down on Franklin Street, like the thoroughfare for the University of North Carolina. And I walk into this Cadoba and I walk up and I order, I don't know, a burrito or whatever it is. And the guy just shut, a burrito for the guy in the Duke shirt. And I'm just kind of looking around. And I keep on going down and I order it. And he's like, rice for the guy in the Duke shirt. Nachos for the guy in the Duke shirt. And I was just sitting there kind of looking around like, well, this is strange, but I guess I brought it on myself. I wore a Duke shirt to the University of North Carolina. Not exactly super smart if I wanted to go incognito. He was nice enough to come and give me a free burrito certificate for being a good sport about it, which I never redeemed. Uh, But the point was this. I was wearing a shirt with my identity on it that automatically was dividing to where I was. And the challenge for us as Christians is that sometimes we proudly wear shirts that identify us with cultural norms and cultural connections that are not Christ's ones. We identify, we embrace other identities that frankly are not the identities of Christ's ones in a variety of different ways. We should ask ourselves, if someone were to come in from the Somali community, if someone were to come in from the Latino community around us or would come in to our doors on a Sunday morning, would they immediately be struck by the culture that is of Christ's ones? Or would they be hit square in the face with a shirt, if you will, that sends a different message, a one that says, you might not be so welcome here. This is our community. Now, 
Is there incredible amount of discernment that's needed in this? There is. Is there an incredible amount of spiritual sensitivity to know what that looks like and what that doesn't? Yeah, there is. But the simple point is this. In Antioch, there was a move of the Holy Spirit that broke down a kind of cultural and communal boundary that was a hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ by those who were willing to be identified solely as Christ's ones. And if there is going to be a move of the gospel in this community in Minneapolis, it is going to require the work of the Holy Spirit for those of us to truly, to truly embrace what it means to be Christ's ones and no others in a way that will allow us to be a disciple church, a diverse church, and truly a devoted church to the cause of Christ and his cause alone. There is much more to be said on this topic, and I hope we'll have that opportunity in weeks ahead. But for now, may we leave with this question. To those who know you in this church community, to those who know you in your work community or in your neighborhood, would they truly say of you, just like they said of those Christians in Antioch, that's a Christ one. That's a Christ one. And no one else's. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of the Spirit of God to knock down the middle wall of partition between us and to bring in one man and so make peace. I just thank you, Father, for the body, the community that you have brought together here at Straight Gate Church. I thank you for in so many ways how this body and these people do reflect a true Christ one mentality. And oh, Father, we desire to see what happened at the Church of Antioch happen here, in which we are united solely around the person and work of Jesus Christ and united truly around nothing else. Oh, I pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to that place of humility, to that place of submission, to that place of sensitivity, to be truly your Christ ones in Minneapolis.